I would much rather just be comfortable financially, but love where I'm doing, just focusing on being happy with what I do. When I think about those times where I weren't happy, I'm in a negative mindset that's not easy to switch off. So I don't want to sort of break that hole either. I don't want to be like having bad days because I hate what I'm doing or I'm just striving to make a million and it having a, a negative impact on my life. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Webflail. I'm your host Jack, your failure connoisseur, and today my guest is Jordan Gilroy. One half of Kin Studio, Jordan works with his brother Liam, building a small but mighty agency, making pixel-perfect stunning websites which arrest the user in a small digital moment of wow. Or at least that's what it's like for me when I check out their portfolio, so go check it out after this episode. Jordan has won multiple awards and recognitions for his work, such as Design and Art Direction in Book Award and Sight of the Day. But with Jordan's 10 years of experience in the digital design industry, starting as a senior designer at a creative agency, and working projects for leading companies across different sectors, you think he didn't have some ups and downs along the way? Huh. We'll dig into these today. Focusing on the volume of work and saying yes to everything. Undervaluing his services and being too cheap. And poor project management. So, embrace and learn from failure in episode 55 of Webflail with Jordan Gilroy. Welcome, Jordan, to Webflail. Thank you. Nice intro, as always. I'm always impressed by the intros you give, so I was waiting to see what, what you said for me. Ah, good. Yeah, well, I wanted to go deep in terms of understanding you, because you've obviously had so much experience in the design sphere, and also, you work with your brother, and I work with my brother, and I'm really intrigued about that dynamic. So let's start there. Were you always destined to work with your brother do you think i think we always wanted to work together in some capacity yeah going back to you know my brother playing drums and me playing guitar when we were younger and we tried to make that work the only issue there was he was a good drummer and i was shit on guitar so that never really went anywhere and yeah there's always been this creative overlap where we but we couldn't really make anything stick and Liam, he's a, he's a videographer and photographer by trade. That's that's his passion. That's what he loves. But when he got to 30, I think it was, he decided to learn how to code. So changed his career path, got into coding, and then that led to a more obvious sort of way that we can connect with what we do. Design and developer, you know, goes hand in hand. So, yeah, we got there in the end. 30 years in the making. <laughs> and I'm intrigued about the band. I mean, what is this? Is this <laughs> like, let's dig into that because you kind of skipped over that for a second. What, so is that like a rock band or what What kind of music were you guys playing? Yeah, I mean, there's there's no, uh, the band never formed. We didn't even get as far as a name. It was just mainly jamming in his bedroom and then, yeah, it's getting told by his, uh, by his mum to keep the noise down <laughs> oh, because it sounded so tragic. <laughs> but yeah, it was yeah. Rock is one way to describe it. Very more like yeah, collection of angry noises. But now you're making sweet digital harmonies together, so it's all come back around. Let's talk a little bit about your background in in design then, because after looking at your LinkedIn, which 
I'm going off. I hope it's up to date. Maybe it is. That you were kind of quite early on promoted to quite a senior level, it seems, in the agency that you worked at because you were at um, Vast for six years, it says. Yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah, that was some of my first, first stop out of you. I mean, I got lucky in the fact that, you know, my first placement or internship turned into a, a full time position. But actually, started out, I was hired to retouch uh, photography, um, changing the, the line and all you know, suits and things like that. You know, if a suit didn't fit a model properly, extending the leg and it was like, it was awful work. But I just, I found out that I was, at the time I was better at that than I was a designer because I felt like you need to sort of like let me down a bit in terms of prepping me for the real world of design. So my education started at that agency. Um, and with the right sort of mentorship that I had, I got me shipped together on the design front and got better. But the agency I worked at, they didn't do any digital. They, it was a, a print-based agency. And predominantly for fashion and retail clients as well. So a lot of lookbooks, brochures, the odd website, but you know, there's nothing, um, nothing that anybody had relative experience with. And then... The agency pivoted to digital so for the last couple of years that I was there. But we didn't have anyone there with that digital experience to sort of lead the team. So everybody ended up being a self-taught web designer to a degree. So we took what we knew about print and tried to transition to web. So as you can imagine, it didn't go that smoothly the output wasn't that great to start with but I think we all sort of or me I can always I'll, I'll just speak for myself I just got really into it and I thought yeah I actually enjoy you know working on websites much more than I do on printed materials especially since like if you fuck up in print and it goes to print that's it, it you know you, your mistake is out there permanently so yeah I enjoyed that bit about web of being able to have more access, more flexibility to your work. I think your websites feel quite editorial style. There's quite interesting layouts, a lot of big photography, which is kind of the main focus. And then you've got these big titles with text. And it, it does remind me of like a print, a print layout. So it seems that your design style has been quite influenced by maybe that time in that in that industry. Yeah, yeah, possibly. But I think as well, because like I mentioned, we didn't really have that, that designer on the team that had web experience. I spent a lot of the time just walking around dribble when it was good and, you know, getting getting inspired by, by all the top posts on now. And yeah, every time I saw something great, it just made me sort of want to push the boundaries of my own work a bit more. And, and yeah. I, I got a lot of inspiration from various people and places online, and I think that kind of helped shape my design style as well. Because I did a lot of like, self-initiated projects. It's a chance to, because you don't always get opportunities when you're working in an agency to do, you know, really creative stuff. So I would spend, you know, my own time, you know, getting stuck into a really open brief that I set myself. You know, just basically just so I can go nuts and try different things out. 
I feel like you push the boat out with your designs. I was actually looking at the like endorsements bit of LinkedIn, which is quite a weird area of LinkedIn, by the way. If anyone's listening, it's like, Jack, that's weird. I know. But it's really, really telling to kind of get under the skin of people to to see what, you know, how do other people talk about them? And And one of the endorsements that I read was that you worked for this African NGO and the endorsement basically said that you'd been given quite a broad brief and then you'd come back to them with a design that they were like, what the, like, this is not what we were expecting, but we love it. And that seems to be like quite a character trait of, of kin that you will kind of take something that maybe is not that formed and you'll bring it to like level 200, like quite early on, you'll, you'll push the design like as far as it can go in in a really creative manner which is really cool yeah i mean they're they're typically the kind of projects that we like to work on so sometimes we'll we'll have briefs where you know the client might have just had a brand a rebrand done so they've got they've got these new brand guidelines and everything and and that's cool they're they're fun projects to work on but i think the, the really fun ones are where the client is using the website to lead the rebrand so it's almost like we're refreshing our brand. We want to. We want this new website. It's an opportunity to look at, you know, a new visual language, new colors, new fonts, etc. You're essentially helping re- refresh the brand and create a new a new direction through the web project. Can I ask you though? Because I've been given various bits of advice about you're either a designer or you're a developer, right? Like I remember I went for an interview at an agency a couple of years ago and. They were like, are you a designer or are you a developer? And I was like, well, I, I do do Webflow websites. And they were like, are you a designer or are you a developer? And I, that, I think, is is kind of interesting in the context of what, what you've just said because you're saying, well, hey, if you don't have brand guidelines and you want a website, I'm going to create something out of nothing and really push the boundaries of not only giving you a visual language but a digital experience and you seem to kind of do everything together and can you give me a little bit of an insight as to what you think about this whole should you be a designer or a developer thing or you know and and how you kind of think about that yeah yeah sure so i know in in what i've said there's a little crossover there into branding but if i get the vibe from the client of the say directly that they want a proper branding exercise logo brand guides ton of advice all that kind of stuff I always recommend people that I work with in the past usually Studio Charm. They're a really great branding agency. Little plug for them there. The designing and developer thing is it's an interesting one. It's it's funny because recently, since I've sort of got the the Webflow part on the partner program, I've been inquiries for build only, but I've said no to them all, and that's because that's because I'm a designer first. I've only been building sites of Webflow for, uh, I can't remember when my own site went live. That was the first one I did late last year, maybe. And with uh, the, the idea of just uh, offering Webflow, uh, you know, the build services, that sort of scares me a little bit because I'm, I'm really comfortable and confident with building out my own designs. And because I'm at a designer first, I kind of need that to drive me on with the build, if that makes sense. But yeah, when so going back to the question that you were asked, you're a designer or a developer, I can't see why you can't answer as both. 
But yeah, I mean, I would have cost. I think developers are um, different to Webflow developer anywhere, unless you are comfortable with code. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think. I don't think there's necessarily a right answer to this because I've asked a few people on the podcast about this question just to just to really throw them a curveball early on in the interview. But, you know, this this idea of being a a web flower, like as in you're not using the word designer or developer, you're just someone that uses Webflow versus people that are coming to Webflow with, you know, a design background like you are or or even a dev background, and they're like, oh, I want to speed up the dev process, and I'm using Webflow with VS Code and GitHub Copilot or Slater now. It's just quite an interesting thought. But there's a few really important things that I just want to circle back to that you've that you've said there. I mean, one thing that I think's really crucial is that there's not a right answer with this. I think you naturally are going to be inclined to want to really push your brand identity for a client that's going to influence you know maybe how complex your websites are and how you might need extra support in that department so that's maybe like answering the question for you to a certain extent so just following your nose is is going to is actually going to kind of define who you are rather than setting out to like i am you know this person in a box um maybe just following your your you know natural instinct and you know creative nose is, is gonna guide guide your way to a certain extent and i think there's another thing that you said that i think is really important as well that when you were starting out that you looked at the best designers on dribble or what you thought was you know the best work and then that really influenced how you then design and and built stuff in webflow right like you were looking at these amazing people and then you were like okay i'm gonna take some of that creative source and make up projects and then just go crazy with it and i think that's such an important thing to talk about because when you're starting out in the webflow space or starting out in the design space in general um success leaves clues right like if you look at people that are at the top of their game and you're digesting that like you are what you eat to a certain extent i think and i think just having fun projects that you just want to make up is going to create the best creative work for you that's going to attract clients as well. What do you think about that? No, I, I, I agree. It's kind of, I think it's, you know, something that, that might be covered when we talk about one of my failures, but creating self-initiated work, I, I did I did a lot of that because I was doing work that I didn't necessarily want in my portfolio, but I were accepting the projects anyway. So then I ended up building out a portfolio of work that, was attracted more of that work. Um, it was stuff that I didn't want to do. So I had to do this, this self-initiated project that basically sets people up. I can do this style of work as well. And I'd much prefer to do this style of work as well. So just, yeah, going down that road, just I think it will probably unlock a few more doors for me and, and get me, you know, some new leads because I, I'd, even though it's not, you know, real client work, I think it, it can show your ability. As long as you've got to be careful as well not to, you know, go down that rabbit hole and get sucked into creating something self-initiated that looks great but isn't functional as well. Just make sure you bear that in mind. I always had a gripe with stuff on Dribble that looked amazing, but I'm like, 
in reality, that wouldn't work. It's not functional. And I think, you know, some clients are going to look at it like that as well. They're not just looking for pretty pictures. So if you are going to do self-initiated work, just make sure there is a, you know, a little bit of realism to it. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, actually, because like you say, I think dribble is, it's kind of like, I see it as like the candy floss of design. Like it's like you go there and it's sweet and pretty, but it's all a bit fluffy in terms of like substance. I completely appreciate what you're saying. You know, you need to think about how would a user actually use this to a certain extent. And I think that comes from experience though. I think at the start, you you know, you're throwing in animations left, right and center and you're just like, I'm just going to make, you know, something that I think is just, really fun and engaging but actually from a user's perspective they're probably going on it like having a you know palpitations on a mobile phone and stuff so really important yeah the thing is i've, I've said all that and you could go on the dribble and scroll down and you'll probably find you know things that make me sound like a hypocrite but you're right you, you do go through that to a certain extent but yeah just gonna make sure it's the uh, it's web design that you're trying to show and not graphic design now i would also add by the way guys matt evans he just roasted my website and he was like yeah this this like on the home page there's this scroller thing with the podcast and he was like it drives me insane because i can't click through like it's it looks fun. like it's like oh cool it scrolls like as you scroll down the page but it doesn't actually work so i'm i think i i need to you know take my own cake and eat it to a certain extent so but yeah, think about the user. Definitely, you can get lost in the in the animation source. Are you ready to jump into the failures now, Jordan? Yeah, let's do it. All right, start the therapy. So, tell me about failure number one then. Focusing on the volume of work and saying yes to everything when you started out in freelancing. <clears throat> yeah, so saying yes to everything was driven by sort of my own insecurities as a designer, you know, sort of not having, yeah, I, I had a certain amount of confidence, otherwise I wanted to go freelance. But then you, as soon as you go freelance, you're in the same, you're swimming in the same pool as all these other freelancers that you admire and look up to and you know, the work, you know, a hundred times better. And all of a sudden you're like, shit, I've just gone from, you know, agency. And maybe I was the big fish at the agency to, you know, now I'm, I'm this little fish. So those, those insecurities led me to just say yes to every inquiry that came my way. And then to make sure I was landing those projects, I was pricing myself super cheap. At the time it was kind of like, you know, well, I'll just, do as much as I can, as quick as I can, and kind of, you know, bank some cash for when the leads stop coming through. So, yeah, so part where it was insecurity, part of it was fear of the work drying up. And that led to what I mentioned earlier about having a portfolio that didn't represent the direction I wanted to go in or, you know, what I wanted to be known for. So getting into that was easy. Getting out of it was a struggle. There's so much stuff that you just said there that I just want to dive into. Okay, so backtrack. You were working at this agency and then 
you dived into freelancing or dove into freelancing. I don't know what the past of that is. Why did you decide to freelance, first of all? Yeah, okay, good question. Because of the repetition of Irving Silent, myself, sort of, the agency I was working at, it was a small team. And that there wasn't that much, you know, of the real agency work coming through the doors. And I found that when something did come in that I'd want to work on, the the sort of lead designer was almost keeping that to themselves and you know, passing out all the right shitty bits to everybody else. By the shitty bits, I mean social media templates, e flyers, stuff like that. Because the agency I work for did a, you know had all their clients on retainer, so that that was a big part of the retainer agreement, doing all these social bits marketing bits and pieces and I just found myself doing that on repeat to the point where I was feeling numb about it all I was there was no motivation Um, I started resenting going to work so yeah I I built up some contacts and the reason that I chose to go freelance is because I was offered a couple of retainers which would take up half my time so for me it was the perfect opportunity to to go freelance and have some sense of security at least for a short while Uh, I wasn't just jumping into you know freelance and and start from scratch so to speak okay awesome okay so big big bit of nugget for you guys there jordan didn't just dive into freelancing without having any kind of you know financial stability you know he'd already worked in an agency got experience learned from people that were better than him at the time and then was like okay i feel like i'm not growing enough and i want to and i want to move on and then you'd also secured retainer contracts so you were just like okay i have the financial stability to now take that step because i think sometimes people are trying to learn design principles while also trying to get clients and i'm speaking from experience here it's stressful as fuck trying to do courses on the side while then trying to do like client calls after you've just watched a christo video about how to do a sales call and it's like it's not it's not healthy so i think that's a really important thing to to highlight there okay so you leave the agency after you get these two retainer clients and you you said originally when we started talking about this failure that you felt like the portfolio work that you were doing didn't reflect who you are and the direction you wanted to go in did you know that did you know what direction you wanted to go in as a freelancer though because i think that's it's kind of hard in hindsight to be like oh i took the work and it was it was like an error because it didn't reflect who I was or what I wanted to be. But I kind of feel like you wouldn't have even known that until you had taken maybe that misstep. No, that's a good question. I think because I, I've, I've never had a clear idea of, you know, like I, I want to work on websites with a specific sector or industry. I've never sort of like niche down that much. I just knew that I wanted to do stuff that was more creative, I guess, that would... Uh, allow me to push myself a bit more. I, I did have a sense of it being work that I, you know, I didn't want to read more of because it was it was fairly safe, fairly corporate feeling, and I just knew it wasn't that, that I wanted to be doing. I wanted to do something, work on projects that are a little bit more exciting, or you know, fun, 
are just really creative. I just, I just, I like projects that have a degree of freedom to them. Yeah, that makes tons of sense. And I think there's this kind of tension between the work that you get paid to do and the work that you want to do to a certain extent sometimes. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because I noticed that the agency website, you know, you've got variety of different industries and, and clients. You're not like, we're the agency that focuses on NFT product or whatever. You know, you're not niching by by industry. You're actually, your style, your, the style of websites that you do is the reason why clients come to you and all the different industry projects that you have seem to have a very like creative aesthetic which seems to be the reason why people come to work with you more than this guy is the agency or ken is the agency for x industry is that fair yeah yeah i think it is i think it, it goes back to it kind of links to the reason i left the agency life i feel like if we niche down to a specific industry you know our type of type of client then we would get more work but then I would, I don't know how Liam would feel about it, but I would just get sick of doing the same type of project all the time. I think it would sort of lead me to feel in a similar way as I did towards the end of agency life where things just felt a little bit repetitive. So I I much prefer just to welcome, you know, clients from from all industries and it just adds a lot of variation to the work that we do. Um it, it probably doesn't give us as many leads because we're not, you know, that the go-to agency for a for a particular type of client or industry. But I'd like to think, like you said, that you know, clients come to our us for for our aesthetic and can see how it can sort of work for their brand or business. It's interesting that you think that you would get more leads and potentially have like a bigger. I guess more leads equals more money, so more financial success in air quotes. And you're still like, yeah, I don't want to do that. Because the thing that seems to drive you is having portfolio work that gives you the creative freedom to explore and create something that's quite unique. Can you talk to me a little bit about like what drives you and Liam? Yeah, I think by, by the end of our time here we'll have spent more time at our desks than any other single place so you know i want to be happy while i'm at my desk i want to be happy while with what i'm working on i want to i want to feel motivated it's not somewhere i i want to come and just go into autopilot and just grind and make cash and then feel stressed and shitty afterwards and then be in, the, in that endless loop i would much rather just be comfortable financially but love where I'm going. I know it's a bit of a cliche to love what you do and you know it it has a lot of sort of value but it is how I feel about it. It does have a lot of value. It's, it's a bit of a sort of like mental health thing I guess just focusing on being happy uh, with what I do because I, I found as well when I, when I think about those times where I weren't happy it's not like I'd I'd finish work there and all, all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I've finished work, I'm happy now, all's good. I'd still be in, you know, probably still be in a sour mood and I'd, I'd probably still be like, you know, a bit of a dick with people outside of work just because I'm, I'm in a re- negative mindset that's not easy to switch off. 
you know, it's not as, as quick as walking out the door at work. So I don't want to sort of, you know, bring that home either. I don't want to be like, you know, having bad days because I hate what I'm doing or I'm just, you know, striving to make a million and it having a, a negative impact on on their life. Yeah, we'd just much rather enjoy what we're doing and be comfortable. It makes total sense. Like, it's just... And I think anyone that's listening is like, yeah, sound advice. But there are still people that are like, how can I make money? And that is their kind of top priority. You know, I think to a certain extent, like actions express priorities, right? Like, you know, if you say, I want to do what I love, and then you're just trying to like get the biggest clients you can possibly get or, or and you know, at, at the cost of everything else, then... Can you really say that you're really doing what you love to a certain extent? So I just think it's interesting that you're not just saying that, like you you seem to be um, kind of living that, uh, which I think is just really important to highlight. Okay, tell me about failure number two, undervaluing your services and being too cheap. Yeah, so... I think where I where I struggled going freelance is I didn't have a clue what everybody else was charging. And when I worked at the agency, I wasn't involved in that side of things. I didn't know how much we were charging clients. So, you know, I couldn't sort of like reverse engineer the web projects that way. I think about, you know, what my value in that project was and or how much I should bill in relation to what the agency was billing. So I was just going in I was going in what I considered cheap, which was, you know, just enough to, it was enough to cover the bills and, and have, have a little bit of money left over because I guess I felt at the time that it was the quickest way to sort of, you know, get more, you know, quote unquote guaranteed work. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, as I mentioned earlier with the retainer thing, it's, it's kind of a trick I want to get out of then because you get people coming back to you for those, for those cheaper services. And I think when you put your prices up and, and the client doesn't bat an eye, then you, then you know it was the right choice to make. And you also know that you should probably bump them up a little bit more. But yeah, I think it's probably, I'd like to imagine it's a, it's a common journey for, freelancers starting out, starting out getting the pricing thing right because as well I would I think I was pricing in a day but then I'd also have a hour hourly rate that comes into the whole work smarter not not harder thinking as well so I changed that to sort of fixed fee per project I think what you sometimes get with charging people a day is if you send them something at you know, three o'clock saying, you know, here's the work for, for feedback or it might be the end of the project, I've finished the project. And they're like, oh, well, can you look at this as well as soon as you've got a couple of hours left in the day? And it's, there becomes like a, a score creep then because they're, they're, they're essentially paying for your time. If you've quoted them, you know, a day rate, they're paying for your time, really, not for a fixed scope or deliverables so changing that yeah pricing methodology definitely help Mm. and then it also sounds like there's a kind of value to your work like obviously you know money is is a value exchange and if you feel like 
you know, your if everyone's just accepting at the first pass when you put a proposal to them, like if every single proposal you set out is like, yep, perfect, great, when can we start? Then it's probably an indicator that you're undervaluing your services. And I think this, this just to clarify, because I think people might be a bit confused off like, you know, the first thing that we just talked about, about like chasing money and stuff and like trying to da-da-da, grow um, something bigger and, and better and be more financially successful and stuff. You need to cover your costs, right, guys? Like, you need to feel as well that you are providing value that's worth what you're charging. And I think that comes back to kind of mental health. Like, it's not just a kind of fickle, I just want to get money to get money type thing. It's actually like, no, I'm worth this, and I can provide this service and I really do believe and back up, you know, the prices that I that I set to a certain extent. And then also, as Lucy Lilliard said in the last episode, like, if you can't cover your costs, then you're not going to be able to do good creative work, right? So I think that's just kind of a, an important thing to, to clarify for anyone that's listening is like, wait, we just talked about not trying to grow in a million dollar agency and then we're talking about raising prices. It's it's just making sure that you are charging what you should be charging. That's essentially what we're what we're talking about here. Can I ask you a little bit about what you just said there as well? You talked about hourly pricing, fixed pricing. There's a ton of people in the space doing subscription-based models right now. And I'm very intrigued to hear your thoughts as someone that's been doing retainers and then is like hourly pricing and then day rates and then you've also now got you know fixed fixed pricing per project can you tell me what you think about this whole subscription army that is forming yeah i mean at first initially i was a fan and then i saw more and more sort of use cases of it and different people doing it from different sort of service offerings it started to intrigue me a bit more so then you know i made some notes recently on on how it could apply to kin but I just can't. I can't think of a sort of. I can't think of a service offering that offers value to the client over a sustained period of time. So if you take our, our core services of you know web design, workflow development, film, photography, there's maybe some you know bolt-ons that we could do, which is stuff that I don't like doing, like you know, pitch decks, email, marketing materials, but. It's, it's the thing that I've, I've tried to think of it from a customer point of view. They would sign up for a web design, you know, maybe they get some photo and video done for that website. But it's, it's after launch, I struggle to think of, well, how do we keep that client beyond, beyond that, beyond the launch of the website? You know, you could offer to do, I'm just thinking about what, what I'm comfortable doing. I could offer to do, social media assets or marketing or whatever but then the monthly fee needs to come down it needs to reflect you know that you know the fee needs to reflect what they're going to be getting from me because most of the clients I work with clients direct so they're not coming in and asking for multiple websites you know there's a chance that you could get you could argue that I will end up you know another agency might subscribe and outsource the work to us but that would only work if they were happy for us to you know show the work on our site as well like we wouldn't do it white label so i just think 
it would be difficult. There's some people that, that are doing it right. I just don't know if it if it's right for us. I think in the end we would get the same the same amount of money as we would by quoting for the projects. Interesting thoughts there. I have to get someone on the podcast who is doing the subscription based um, model because I do think it's intriguing how different people are approaching this problem. Tell me about failure number three. Poor project management from processes to scope and deliverables. Yeah, I think that is sort of when I when I started out, I was very much just winging it. And again, that's because it, got, it, got, it all ties back to working in the agency at that period that I mentioned where, excuse me, where we transitioned from print to digital, but there was no one later in the line. So as well as kind of being self-taught digital designer, yeah, you, you had no one there with you know these past processes that they brought into the agency and, and all that kind of stuff. So it was everything was on the fly. It was winging it, and I kind of carried that through to being a freelancer. I didn't really have any concrete processes in place. It kind of just depend on the projects, you know. And if a client asked me what my process was. You know, every client around that time probably got a different answer depending on how I thought I could approach that project and should approach that project. But yeah, I think sort of doing that left me open sometimes to discomfort from the client side, not really knowing where where I am in, in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, on the bigger picture of the project and, you know, what's coming next and, that, and all this kind of stuff. Um, I would sometimes give a quote and just say, yeah, that's for all desktop and mobile designs and not actually be specific about what that covers page-wise. So that had, that had shocked me sometimes. Um, uh, and yeah, I just I just didn't have my shit together on that side of things. That was up to me now, so I had to get a handle on it. Okay, and what's the quickest way that someone listening who's like, damn, I resonate with Jordan here, how would they get a handle on it quickly? Project management, just having just having a clear and consistent process. Uh, make sure all bases are covered. Make sure you are protected, uh, that you're also protecting the client. Make sure that you communicate very well. I make a conscious effort of, you know, I've... I can't remember the last time I, I was chased by a client over email. I make a conscious effort to give them updates all the time so they never have to chase me because I know what it's like to be chasing someone for an update. It's a pain in the ass. No one wants to do it. And if you're being chased, it's because, you know, they're expecting something by now. So manage those expectations up front. Just over-communicate. They're very clear and set your stall out, make sure you've got everything in writing with them as well. To be honest with you, I there's not many sort of contracts that I've signed. Everything is, is mainly done over email. Um, but yeah, just communication is, is key. Awesome. Okay, key takeaways. Over-communicate. Give consistent updates. Like, be the person that is front-footed and... and don't leave them guessing. When clients are unsure, that they become like kind of project managers for you. That is the worst I found. 
I'm not very good at admin-based stuff. And what I've found is that the client becomes a client from hell if I don't do the basics well, basically. So yeah, I really, really resonate with that point. Jordan, are you ready for your final question? Go for it. What is your next failure going to be? It's probably going to be a mix of pastelias. So I'm probably going to be in a situation where my calendar is full, but then I get an inquiry for a project that I really want, either for financial reasons or because I think it would add a lot of value to my portfolio. Like it's a, you know, a project that if I showcased it, it would, you know, breed more of that type of work. Because I've been, I've, I've done this before and I'll definitely do it again, where I will make time when I haven't really got time to do that project just because I see it as a, it's a valuable asset. Thanks a lot to Jordan for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot to you guys for listening. So, the part of this episode that really stood out to me was the one where Jordan said he thought he would get more leads by focusing on niching to a particular industry or sector, but deciding not to because he liked the variety of projects that Kin received. A lot of the time, people talk about doing work that makes them happy. It's kind of, you know, it's a cliche thing. But perhaps because of the golden handcuffs, people don't actually follow through with this promise to themselves. They normally optimize their life to make as much money as possible rather than to be as happy as possible, I've found. This is not to devalue the importance of money. Of course you need to earn sufficiently to keep doing freelancing and to have a sustainable way of life, right? But Jordan and Liam seem to have got to a point in their career where they can choose the projects that they work on more and have purposely made their agency about creative design and film rather than aiming their services at a particular industry in order to play at their best, in order to continue to love what they do and have good mental health, good balance, and just generally really enjoy the creative work that they do. So I think that's something to think about maybe over the coming few days if you're trying to decide on your direction. Next week for episode 56 of Webflare, we'll be having Josh Jacobs on the podcast. Until then, have a great week of flavors.